Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Take your copy of God's Word this morning and join me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 through 45, sent to serve. Why did Jesus come? In 2006, John Piper wrote a small little booklet entitled, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. Among those reasons, he noted to absorb the wrath of God, to please his heavenly Father, to achieve his own resurrection from the dead, to show the wealth of God's love and grace for sinners, to show his own love for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, to take away our condemnation, to make us holy, blameless, and perfect, to give us a clear conscience, to obtain for us all the things that are good for us, to heal us from moral and physical sickness, to give eternal life to all who believe on Him, to reconcile us to God, to free us from the slavery of sin, to enable us to live for Christ and not ourselves, to make His cross the ground of all of our boasting, to enable us to live by faith in Him, to create a people passionate for good works, to create a band of crucified followers, to free us from bondage, to the fear of death, so that we would be with Him immediately after death, to unleash the power of God in the gospel, to rescue us from final judgment, to show that the worst evil is meant by God for good. And to all of those wonderful reasons, there are three others that are particularly relevant to our text this morning. To become a ransom for many, to call us to follow His example of lowliness and costly love, and to ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Mark chapter 8 through Mark 10 is a remarkable passage of Scripture. It is the most sustained section of the Bible, and in particular the Gospels, on the issue of discipleship. Here our Lord explains in magnificent detail what it really means to be great, and what it really means to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a very distinctive pattern that you find in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. You will find a passion prediction where our Lord will tell us that He is going to die and then be raised from the dead. You then find the disciples doing something foolish, either by action or by statement. And then the Lord Jesus will come back and He will sit them down and He will talk to them about what it means to be His follower and how it is that we can indeed experience and live out a life of true spiritual greatness. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45 are the climactic teaching on this issue of discipleship. And it is here that you have perhaps the theme verse of the Gospel of Mark, a breathtaking declaration in chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. 
This is, I believe, the key verse of Mark's Gospel. This is the reason that Jesus came. This verse gets at the heart of the Gospel, and this verse provides the pattern for all who would follow Jesus. As He was sent to serve and to die, every one of us is likewise sent to serve and if called upon to lay down our lives for our Savior. In a real sense, this passage of Scripture helps us raise and answer a very important question. That question is this, what will the gospel make of us? When we have believed on Christ and the gospel has become real to us, when we embrace the one who gave his life as a ransom for many, just what will the gospel make of us? This text tells us it will make us like Jesus. It will make us humble. It will make us lowly servants. We will be willing to serve because He served, and we will be willing to put our life on the line because He put His life on the line as well. Now, before we really jump into this world of being a servant, I think it's very important for us to ask the question, well, what is the nature of being a servant in God's kingdom? What is involved in being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is it that we need to see and learn from the greatest servant of all, the one who gave his life in service as a ransom for many? I think there are four observations we can make from this particular text of Scripture that will get us down the road in understanding what it really means to be a servant. Number one, you must consider the cost of being a servant. We find this in verse 32 through verse 34. And they, that is Jesus and the disciples, were on the road, literally in the way, a favorite phrase of Mark. They were on the road going up. You always go up to Jerusalem. It was about 2,000. It is about 2,600 feet in elevation. So they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid, and taking the twelve again... He began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise." They're on the road going up to Jerusalem. This is the first time that the place of His passion is noted. We would surmise probably along the way that this is where it was all going to happen, but this is the first time that Jerusalem is specifically designated. It's very interesting to note that the text says Jesus is going up and walking ahead of them. He is leading the way. Uh, He is going before them. He has His face set for His destiny. William Lane, the wonderful commentator in the Gospel of Mark, in his commentary says, He is inflexible in His determination to do the will of God. In other words, He has counted the cost. Nothing will stop Him on His march to the cross. Nothing at all. I believe that Jesus perhaps had ringing in His ears and in His heart the servant songs of Isaiah chapter 42 and 49 and 50 and of course that climactic servant song, Isaiah chapter 53. And maybe at this particular moment, uh, it is Isaiah chapter 50 and, and verse 7 that was in His mind. But the Lord God helped me. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame." 
And so Jesus is walking ahead of them. He is leading the way. And we learn there in verse 32 that those who were with him were both, one, amazed. And secondly, the text says they were afraid. The word amazed means to be astonished, awed. What is happening is unnerving to them. They, they don't know all that's going on. But they know something very important is about to happen in the very near future. The text says that they were afraid. Our, the word phobos, phobia, we get our word, means to be terrified. Terrified of what? No, terrified of, of who? He is marching ahead of them, leading the way. He knows where he's going. He knows what he is going to face. They don't. And so they are amazed and, and they fear because they just don't understand all that is involved. They have no idea what awaits him, but he does. When I came to Southeastern Seminary in January of 2004, just a couple of months after that, we received word that a number of our precious missionaries had been brutally murdered uh, in Iraq by terrorists. Two of those who were cut down were Larry and Jean Elliott. They are graduates of Southeastern Seminary. Uh, their son, Scott, uh, attends the same church that we do in the area, the Wake Crossroads Baptist Church. After I learned of his mom and dad's death, I called him to simply let him know that we were praying for them over here and that we just wanted to know how they were doing. And I'll never forget, he said, well, we're, we're doing okay. We, we're shedding a lot of tears, but we're also rejoicing because mom and dad are with Jesus, and that's what they've always longed for. He then shared with me, and again, I'll never forget this, that he had received some type of correspondence, I believe it was by email, from a man who claimed to be an atheist who said to him that uh, he was very sorry to hear what had happened to his parents. He just wanted to express his condolences. And then he said he made this statement. He said, isn't it a shame that your mom and dad died for no good reason? He said, uh, Dr. Aiken, I did not get upset with him at all, but I wrote him back and I said, well, thank you for writing. I appreciate your sympathy, but I, I just need to say this to you. My, my mom and dad did not die for no good reason. And then he shared this with him, and again, it has stayed with me all these years. He said, I told him, Dr. Aiken, that my mom and dad had such a confidence in the sovereign providence, purposes, and plans of God for their life that had they known in advance that going to Iraq would have been their death, they would have still gone anyway. Jesus knew in advance what was going to happen when he got to Jerusalem. He had counted the cost and he had set his face to go to his destiny. Verse 32 informs us that they were amazed and afraid, and so Jesus knows it's time to do a little teaching. So he takes them again to himself, and it says there in verse 33 that he lays out for them in magnificent detail exactly what is going to happen. This is the most detailed account of what will happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. I believe he has, again, in his mind, texts like Psalm 22, verses 6, 7, and 8, which speaks of the mocking of the Lord's righteous sufferer. I also think perhaps he had, again, in his mind, Isaiah chapter 15, verse 6, which talks of the suffering that the servant of the Lord will experience. He actually delineates eight very specific aspects of his passion so that they will understand what is going to unfold in the near future. Verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. 
That word condemn is a legal term. It indicates that he is going to be tried and executed within the legal system as a criminal. And God sovereignly and providentially has laid out the road that he will walk, the plan that he will accomplish, and Jesus is going to fulfill his destiny. Again, I would remind us this morning that it is no different with us. Just as the sovereign God orchestrated a perfect plan for His Son, He also has a perfect plan for you and for me. He has your life mapped out to the final detail, to the last breath. There are no accidents. There are no surprises. It is not by accident you prospective students are here today that you are here today. God knew in eternity past that you would be here. And He has planned everything out exactly according to plan to speak to your heart and to clarify in your lives exactly what He wants to do. The same is true for all of us who are already here. God has a plan and we are on the process of going along the way, obeying and being faithful to what He has called us to do. Will there be misunderstanding? Do we have to count the cost? Absolutely. Some of you are here today, and Dr. Ezell even alluded to this on Tuesday. You told your parents that you felt called into the ministry, and they looked at you like you had lost your mind. Then others of you have come back and said, I know that you sent me to school to, to prepare to be a doctor, or to be a lawyer, or to go into business, but I now believe that God has called me to the mission field. Have you lost your mind? Do you need to be in counseling? Maybe we need to get you medicated. There are costs involved in being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must consider the cost. Secondly, you must also consider the challenge to being a servant. Look at verse 35 through verse 40. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Oh, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able. <laughs> what morons. Anyway... Of course, I'd have been probably just like them, so, uh, you know, uh, I fit right in. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to, to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. You know, being a servant doesn't come easy. Especially for those of us who are in the process of being trained to be leaders. And it's certainly not easy for those of us who have dreamed all of our lives of being in a position someday where people will be serving us. And after all, there's a voice that often speaks inside of our head that appeals to our sinfulness that says something like this, well, don't forget, the Lord takes care of those who take care of themselves. Just enough truth to deceive us and just enough heresy to derail us. It's a pretty good description of James and John, isn't it? It's interesting. They, they get a number of things right here. We need to at least begin by praising them for what they do get right and what they do understand. They're right, according to verse 37, when they say that we want to be with you in your glory. Uh, he is headed for glory. That, that, they're correct. 
Uh, they believe that in the end He is going to win and that He is going to reign as King Jesus. And they're right about that. But that's about all that they're right about for the rest. And in particular, how the glory would come, they, they don't have a clue. They just don't get it. They're kind of like you and kind of like me. And they need a lesson just as we need a lesson this morning on a, on a cup and a lesson on a baptism. It says there in verse 35 that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Matthew is so helpful here. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, we are told that they actually used their mother to do their dirty work. And if you study the Gospels, you can easily draw the conclusion that uh, their mother happened to be Jesus' aunt, which then means that James and John were his cousins. And, of course, there is somebody that's just missing from this picture, and that, of course, is Peter. He gets cut out. Uh, blood is thicker than water, and so the, the ten, including Peter, are kicked to the curb, and uh, they come to Jesus. Now, you can sense from the text that they realize that what they're asking for is probably something they should not ask. Uh, they have already, by the way, been promised in, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28 that when He comes into His kingdom, there are going to be twelve thrones. And the twelve apostles will be sitting on the twelve thrones with him in the kingdom. But that's not enough, is it? Not for James and John. No, no, no. They not only want a throne, they want to have the, the choice and the most honored throne, the one to the left and the one to the right. Again, I think they recognize at least deep inside the inappropriate nature of their request. And so they, they try to trick Jesus. They're, they're kind of like our children. They try to get him to agree to something before they tell him what it is that they want. Teacher, verse 35, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Well, he won't be sucked in, and so he simply says in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? By the way, I've been studying ahead in Mark's gospel, and when Jesus... Uh, confronts a man or meets a man named Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, he will ask him exactly the same question that he just asked the two disciples. What do you want me to do for you? And they said, we want the best seats in the house. Blind Bartimaeus simply says, I, I, I just want to see. I, I just want to see. Well, Jesus... In grace and in kindness responds, even though their their question is so superficial. They, it reveals so much about the sinfulness of all of us, doesn't it? They have a superficial understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. They have an inflated opinion of of themselves and their their own importance, and they are so wrong-headed. And how it is that God measures greatness. You would have thought that they would have figured this back out in back in chapter 9 in, in verse 34 where it says they were on the road and they kept silent for they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and picked him up and said, here's what it means to receive one of these. That's what it means to be great, but they just don't get it. And, and many times we don't get it, even those of us in ministry. If we're not careful, we develop a peacock syndrome. You know, let's be honest, even in our Southern Baptist salt culture, we, we have our, our spiritual rock stars. I mean, just, just making the statement sounds so, so crass. 
rock stars in the kingdom of God? Are you kidding me? And yet we are just as susceptible to that kind of way of thinking as is the world. I mean, after all, we know who we are. We know what we've done. We know what we deserve. And it's just very clear, isn't it, that being a servant after the pattern of Jesus is a divine enablement. It goes against our human inclination. By the way, I found this to be interesting. At the point of His greatest glory, there will be two people on His left and on His right. There will not be two apostles on thrones. It will be two thieves on crosses. Jesus is gentle but direct in his response to the disciples as he begins to unfold this. He says in verse 38, you you don't know what you're asking. And then he raises two rhetorical questions in terms of imagery using a cup and a baptism. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And are you able to be baptized with the baptism which I will be baptized? Let's unwrap those very quickly. Drinking a cup. In the Old Testament, it speaks of sharing in one's fate, experiencing one's destiny. It was a common picture in the Old Testament of the judgment and the wrath of God being poured out. Go look at Psalm 75 or Isaiah 51 or Jeremiah 25 and you'll see the powerful imagery of the cup as being that which contains the wrath of God. And it is so appropriate because He was indeed going to drink to the last drop the wrath of God on your behalf and on mine. Baptism means to be overwhelmed, flooded, immersed in the destiny planned for him by his father. Again, you see this imagery, thinking of the flood in Genesis 6, but also in Psalm 69. And so his cross is a divine destiny. His future is a divine destiny wherein he will drink fully and completely the wrath of God and he will be overwhelmed with a baptism. And he understood all of this. And even though he was the God-man, he was the God-man. And he struggled with this. Hear the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 14 and verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Hear him again in Luke chapter 12 and verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Did James and John understand all of this? Their quick response in verse 39 would indicate that they do not. They said to him, we're able, we can do it. And then our Lord, by divine revelation, informs them that indeed they do have ordained something along the lines of a similar destiny. He says, the, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Isn't it interesting? James was the first apostle to be martyred in Acts chapter 12. And the Apostle John would be exiled at the end of the first century to the island of Patmos by the Roman Emperor Domitian where he would be left there to suffer and hopefully die. 
And yet Jesus then says to them in verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or my left hand, that, that's not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. And I would quickly say it's been prepared for those who would not be asking this kind of question. You see, the Bible makes it clear, does it not, that the pathway to glory always follows a road of suffering. Before we inherit a crown, there is a cup that we have to drink. And before the blessings flow, there is a baptism that is going to overwhelm and drown us. No, you better consider the challenge as well as the cost to being a servant. But now number three. You must also consider the conflict in being a servant. Look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your diakonos, your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a doulos, a slave of all. The ten are ticked off because of the request of the two. I strongly suspect that they're ticked off because not only they, they asked, but they asked first. They beat them to the punch. They, they would have asked if they'd just been a little bit quicker than James and John. Because after all, they all had a lust for position. They all had a lust for power. None of them really yet understood what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. And when Jesus says it's, it's, it's being a servant and being a slave, they just say, that doesn't make any sense. That, that's just absolutely insane. And yet what we see is our Savior turning on its head the standards of the world and how the world measures greatness. Never, never, never forget. God does not measure greatness the way the world does. And it is a tragedy when the church does like the world. It's been going on, unfortunately, for more than now, right at 2,000 years. No, he makes it very clear to them there in verse 42. He said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over. It's beautiful uh, Greek, uh, 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 what am I trying to say here? Uh, packaging of, uh, of words. It's the word katakurios. The word kata is a preposition which means down upon. Kurios means lord. So it's a very picturesque. They come in and they lord down on people. That's the way the world works. And then he goes on to say, not only do they do that, but they also exercise authority, kata exousia, exousia authority, kata down upon. So they are very busy in taking their thumb and pushing others down that they might lift themselves back up. And Jesus makes it very clear, this is not the way it is to be. In this world, the more important you are, the more who serve you. In God's world, the more important you are, the more you serve others. So you want to be great? He says, be a diakonos, a servant. You want to be first and be a slave of all. In other words, in our vernacular, you want to be great? Be a waiter. Be a busboy. Be a janitor. Be a volunteer at a, at a nursing home who, who changes the diapers of the elderly who can no longer take care of themselves. You want to be great? There's where you go. That's what you do. By the way, in God's providence, I have been a waiter. I have been a busboy. 
and I have also served as a janitor. And if I were king of the world, everybody would do one of those three jobs for at least one year of their life. I promise you, you'll look at the world differently, and you'll also treat people differently too. And Jesus says, I know there's a conflict in being a servant. And so the question then begins to be raised, does it not? How do I do this? How can I be a servant? How can I be a slave? And that brings us to our final observation. You, you must consider Christ when being a servant. Jesus has told us where he is going to die. He's going to die in Jerusalem. And now he tells us why he is going to die. And in this verse... He makes a promise to you and to me that no other religious leader in the world has ever made or could make. He declares for all to see and to understand that he came not just to be an example. He came to be our ransom. Again, William Lane says of this verse, the reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank was achieved when Jesus came not to be served but to serve. John Piper says Mark 10.45 is what turns Christianity into the gospel. The word for that begins verse 45 connects it with his argument in verse 43 and verse 44. Why should you be a servant? Why should you be a slave? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Before I unpack that, two quick theological observations. Number one, there is no hint in this verse or in the Bible that there was a ransom paid to Satan, okay? You've studied theology. You know that the patristic view became very dominant with Origen and later with Augustine, that the devil uh, claimed and demanded that the death of Christ be a ransom paid to him in order to let you and me go. There's nothing in the Bible that would indicate in any way that a ransom was paid to Satan. No, the, the ransom was paid to God, and it was the ruin of the evil one. Secondly, there's nothing in this verse that would indicate that Jesus was in any way coerced into giving his life as a ransom for many. In fact, Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, For the joy of the cross, the joy of the cross. In John 10, 18, he says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So, for even... The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. There's so much going on here. Here you have Son of Man uh, uh, title from Daniel 7, wedded now to suffering servant language from Isaiah chapter 53. Question, are you the Messiah? I am the Messiah. But I'm not the kind of Messiah that you expected. I am the, the Son of Man, the one who will come in glory and receive the kingdoms of the world. But I will receive and bring in my kingdom as the suffering servant of the Lord. I am the Messiah. I am the Lord. I am the great King. But my kingdom will be of a much different nature than you expected. You see, this is really, verse 45, what Christmas is all about, isn't it? It's about the Son of God who did indeed exist eternally with the Father as Hebrews 1.3 says, the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of His nature. It is as Luke 1.35 teaches us about the birth of a man, virgin conceived miraculously, not sexually, 
by the Holy Spirit, that He, as the Son of God, might come and make you and me sons of God. It is as Colossians 2, 9 says about a man who, in whom all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. It is about a ruler who will come out of Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. It is about a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, and a Prince of Peace, as Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 says. It is about this one who came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came. He came. Tim Keller says that this phrase, quote, is a strong giveaway, that he existed before he was born. He gave His life. No one takes it. Jesus did not have to die despite God's love. He died because of God's love. The cross, as one man so well said, is the self-substitution of God for sinful humanity. He gave His life as what? A, a ransom. The word lutron. What some theologians develop out of it, uh, what they call the, the wonderful exchange. Uh, we give Him what is ours our sin. He gives us what is His. His perfect righteousness. That word ransom means to be delivered by a purchase. It could refer to the purchasing of a prisoner of war, a purchasing of a slave, the purchasing of a condemned or forfeited life. It means a payment, usually of money. But here, of course, it is a much different kind of ransom. It's not money, it's not silver, it's not gold. But Peter says it so well in 1 Peter 1, 18-21. Knowing this, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was, by the way, foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in this last time for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Ransom for us is clearly substitutionary language. When those uh, uh, who study the Bible and who get caught up in the modern era begin to draw back from the idea of penal substitution, who begin to draw back from the language of God's wrath being poured out on His Son, they, they simply have to ignore a verse like Mark 10:45. It's very, very clear that He bore in His body the full penalty and payment of our sin. God poured out on His Son what He should have and could have rightly poured out on you and on me. Righteousness demanded it and love provided it. And not only were we set free from our sin, brothers and sisters, we were adopted into a brand new family. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says it like this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, we had run away like fools and sold ourselves to Satan and slavery. Jesus saw our pitiful and hopeless situation, pays the ransom, redeems us out of slavery. And then what does He do? He brings us into His Father's house. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray.
Precious Lord Jesus, we thank You so much that You are not only our example that we are to follow, You are our ransom that we are to adore. Indeed, because You have ransomed us for God by the payment of Your blood, You have shown us what it means to be a servant. And Lord, if You came to serve, how could it be that we who follow You would be anything other than that? Yet, Lord, we acknowledge there's a cost that has to be considered. Uh, there is a conflict. It goes against our inclinations to serve. Uh, it is a challenge. But Lord, if we will allow ourselves to just simply look to You, out of gospel gratitude, we will gladly embrace the calling to be a servant because we want to be just like You. Well, we all have examples, we all have heroes, we all have models that we follow. May it be this day that as we accept the calling that we are sent to serve, may we do it in your power, may we do it for your glory, and may it be that we do it, again, very simply stated, because we want to be just like Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.